Welcome back. Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it that we have read or watched. What? I'm Cameron, and with me as always is Michael. What? Flabbergasted. Yeah, I'm, I'm too shocked to, to discuss things today. Bewildered. Uh-huh. You can only represent things through um, extremely out-of-focus close-up shots of classic video games, huh? Yeah. That's your only communicative method now? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Some, like, extremely tight bokeh. <laughs> can, I just, can I just read to you this thing from the IMDb uh, trivia goofs here? Let me uh, let me say what we're doing yep. today before you do that. Today we are we're taking a little bit of wild card swing. Um, we're going to do indie game the movie. Not we're going mm-hmm. to. We're doing. It's not. It's. I guess it's in the future technically. But by the time you're hearing it, it's done. So we've done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by the time you're hearing this, the haunting qualities of a uh, recorded voice. Yeah, the trace of the recorded voice itself of reality and uh, phenomenal time on the longitudinal time. Mm-hmm. Every time you read a book from before 1900, you're reading the thoughts of a dead person. Ooh, scary. But uh, the uh, yeah, we're doing Indie Game the Movie, which is a kind of epochal documentary, <laughs> right? I, know, yeah, for, yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs> it sounds silly to say that, but I think that is actually true. Um, directed by two people who I don't have right in front of me, James uh, Swierski and Lisanne Pejot. Pejot? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Uh, they also produced it, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll get in deep on it. But Michael, you have some trivia <laughs> you want to say about Indie Game, the movie, the 2012 documentary film. Goofs. When Tommy is mailing Microsoft, he's using a PC, but the full screen pictures of the email client are of Apple Mail. What? <laughs> I don't is know. Is that true? I don't know. <laughs> It's just so funny. Like, there's just a couple pieces of trivia, right? Uh, trivia. Give me the other goofs, ones. Yeah, quote. give the rest of the goofs. Well, so, trivia. Much is made in the movie of the protracted development of Fez 2012. The game did eventually get released on April 13th, 2012. Incidentally, Homestuck Day. It received critical praise and is considered a commercial success. How's that for trivia? Fez came out in 2012? Yeah. Same year as this film, apparently, which is weird because I had this wow. like I had a real feeling that it came out later than that, but Did it didn't. <laughs> well, <laughs> bing, bang, boom. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, that's wild to me. That it came out in 2012. I, yeah, I thought it just came out 2013, 14 somewhere in there i this is a thing that also i guess is like uh this is, make watching this movie again which i don't think i've seen in a very long time probably since it came out 20, mm-hmm. 2012 ish uh i it just like it was like a full blown like the world was very different at a different uh-huh. time kind of thing right uh-huh it was like hey do you remember that time when um if your indie game came out in every news outlet covered it that that did anything (laughs) do you remember when that like sold copies (laughs) um you know but like uh the post pewdiepieification of the world like just coverage doesn't do anything Mm -hmm. that's not exactly true but it's it's closer to true than you would hope as Mm -hmm. someone who spent many years of his career actively attempting to uh speak extensively about independent game releases on major gaming news platforms i can tell you it doesn't move the needle as much as you would want these days 
Um, but uh, well, that's that's some wild trivia. You got you got any other uh, facts about the thing before we start talking about it? Uh, unfortunately, no. Here, here's another piece of IMDb trivia. Connections features Braid 2008. Mm. Big connection, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, in case you didn't uh, notice. <laughs> it's in there. Jonathan Blow's in there. Uh, and we'll talk about that, too. So I, I, a few different things maybe to, to say up top here, right? Um, the reason we're doing Indie Game the movie, you, you, you know, King of Kong is a movie I know is still taught fairly often. I don't know if Indie Game the movie is. You know, mm-hmm. every now and again, I talk to someone who teaches it as a historical document. Every now and then, I meet someone who talks about teaching it as a kind of uh, snapshot of ideology, right? Like, not mm-hmm. just of a historical moment, but like of a way of thinking the games. And, uh, you know, there's probably a solid 30 minutes in here. Uh, I mean, I, I think the whole movie is actually interesting. I'm, I'm not coming out the gate being like, this movie sucks or anything. I, I think this movie is really interesting and is much more interesting 10 years on than it was to me at the time, in which I, at that moment, found it unbearable. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've had to work through a lot of animus, I think, over the years with Indie Game, the movie, right? I just had a lot of stuff going on with it. While ultimately feeling some, the whole time, feeling some of the ideas are like sound, right? Like people should make independent work. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> where this documentary goes with the idea of independent work. I find still depressing, um, but uh, so you know, I think it's I think there's stuff that's worth talking about here, um, and maybe in some ways I'm like working my way backward into thinking about because I am teaching uh, a game study seminar in the fall. I teach about games fairly often, but I don't teach very many uh, very many classes that are just games classes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I think you're kind of in a similar boat when you teach, right? You you teach classes with literature, but you are not often teaching a literature course. Is right. That, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Typically, my my uh, remit is comp. Right. So mm-hmm. I that's the I, new T-shirt, I, by the way. My remit is comp. Yeah, let's do that. Mm-hmm. We haven't made a new T-shirt in a minute. Oh no, we <laughs> did. We've got a uh, purple dreamer. We do. You can go down in the description below to check out the T-shirts that we make here at Range Touch. You can get our Purpo Dreamer shirt, but we haven't made. Uh, people actually have poked us and said, why is there not a Game Study Study Buddy shirt? Um, and there is. It's the Beyond the <laughs> Boundary shirt. But, yeah. Uh, maybe we need to make And the Rhetoric is something. Perverted Poetry. That's right. I even forgot about that one. We got the Rhetoric is Perverted. So you wear those. I, I uh, <laughs> told a colleague about that shirt, and he said, well, I can't wear that at work. <laughs> and so you can wear anything you want at work. You're just going to have to field some questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that are probably answered by the shirt. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, why are you wearing a shirt that says it? Well, it's because rhetoric's preferred poetry. <laughs> That's all to say. I, I am thinking about this documentary now across its 10th year, uh, maybe as something that is interesting to talk with game study students about and to talk about not just a historical moment, not just an ideology, but an entire aesthetic universe of like, what is a game and how does it work and what is the ideology of independence? I am uh, in a really interesting position where I teach at an institution where I have lots of students who are interested in games, um, but almost none who are interested in game development. You know, they, mm-hmm. they are interested in game studies, um, which is which is cool. Uh, and maybe they want to make games like, you know, in a general sense, and they haven't been po- poked or prodded. But we do not have a game design program. You know, this is not a major that people are coming into. 
Um, and after having talked to some people recently who are in institutions that are just like that about their experience of teaching the type of course I'm teaching in the fall, I was like, oh, we do actually do have a very different kind of experience of these students and their expectations. So that's all to say, I'm going into Indie Game the Movie, and kind of the reason that I suggested, hey, maybe we go, we think about this, um, is uh, just deeply selfish. Because I'm curious about returning to the thing as part of uh, part of my pedagogy. Maybe not. Maybe we get through this episode and I decide it's not worth it. But, Michael, have you seen Indie Game the movie before? No, not at all. I'd heard plenty about it because, I mean, that that's sort of the other thing about this, right? Is uh, uh, I think maybe for you and me, it, it very distinctly marks a kind of time and place you were already talking about uh uh you know the hit like coverage like what coverage used to do or could do or or what we thought it could do uh this uh came about this thing uh at about the point that i was getting back into games as a thing that i was thinking about like critically and seriously uh whatever we wanted to call what was going on on twitter at that time as like uh kind of that like the the wave of bloggers transitioned in social media so on and so forth uh so i heard plenty about this movie uh usually not particularly uh kind is not the right word because it's not like people were tearing it to pieces but like criticisms of this movie uh mainly you know like what is this uh documentary's vision of what an indie game is who does it can uh, choose to focus on uh and who is not being focused on right who like because indie games uh were a much more riotous and multifaceted space uh at this point than this film would have you believe because it does give you a like very specific vision of what an independent game circa i don't know 2012 i guess but slightly earlier than that uh, looked like um, and so mostly I heard like criticisms of it and that was not exactly the reason I didn't watch it but it didn't help uh, you know the, the other reason I didn't watch it is like quite frankly none of these games are games that I was interested in so <laughs> uh, <laughs> what were you playing in 2000 whatever 2010 11 12 <clears throat> so Let's see. When did Bioshock Infinite come out? I don't know. Um, 2013? Was that 2013? I don't know. You gotta look it up. Um, um, 2013, yeah. Yeah, 2013? Okay, so... Um, I basically would have... Like, I was thinking about games. I probably wasn't really playing them um, at all. Like... Uh, this is a thing that has happened in cycles with me is like, uh, uh, like what is popular in kind of like gaming is it becomes a thing that I don't care about. And so I stop playing games, right? We're, we're hitting that point right now where everything is becoming like about crafting. Um, I've mm -hmm. got some like very big thoughts about tears of the kingdom that I'm hoping to write up sometime. Uh, -oh. uh yeah. Um, but, uh, the, uh, this would have hit me when I was starting to like think through how do I academically connect my interesting games to kind of like my interest in theater. So I'm playing around with a lot of these ideas and like trying to dig into what does the scene in space look like. But uh, I don't really get back into games until 2013 because Bioshock Infinite, um, I make this kind of allowance because it looks interesting and I play it and it pisses me off so much that I have to start making my own games. Yeah, get them. Like, that's when I started making Twine games, was because Bioshock Infinite made me so mad. Is it, are you sure it's not because you, um, you had something you wanted to communicate 
I mean, that was, yes, it was about how much Bioshock Infinite made me mad. Uh, Yeah, no, no, the the thing that I will say about this film that is nice um, is I do enjoy the parts, particularly when, uh, like, Ed McMillan is kind of talking about, like, why he does make games, um, which feels, you know, pretty honest and accurate. Yeah, because uh, uh, not just, it wasn't just, like, uh, I'm so mad about Bioshock Infinite and I want to make a Twine game. It was like I saw stuff happening in Twine games that I wished was uh, something that had like broader resonance in what was considered like, you know, AAA gaming. Um, it was becoming very like really maybe like this kind of little little time period uh was me becoming aware of like the distinctions between like large commercialized AAA games and then uh, games as kind of art spaces um, and open to more independent and sort of like artistic and maybe uh, less commercialized uh, uh, endeavors. So, yeah, yeah, uh, I I mean, it's funny. Uh, here's a little bit of backstory, some uh, little known backstory. You ready? OK, my first interview I ever did as a someone who works in the games press Edmund McMillan Mhm it was like 2012 maybe or 2011 even Wow it might have been in the run up to this movie or right after I don't know it had to be after this movie and I uh, had never done an interview before of any sort <laughs> and I it, and to to McMillan's credit who I I've only spoken to the one time you know I don't I don't know this guy um I was just like, hey, I'm a blogger. Will you do an interview? And he was like, yeah, sure, whatever. You know what I mean? This is like mm-hmm. post Meat Boy. You know what right. I mean, right? So, like, you know, I think I think his time is much more valuable than mine is at that point. And I do this interview. And it's like a full hour because, like, I don't know how to end an interview. And he also seems to not know how to end an interview. And so I just continue to ask him, like, the the goofiest like, you know, like uh, 21, 22, 23-year-old questions uh-huh. the whole time. And I remember distinctly being like, um, so, I, you know, I'm trying to trying to think of some questions that maybe no one's asked you before, <laughs> like in the middle, just because I had no idea how to, I didn't know you could just be like, all right, thank you. You uh-huh. know what I mean? You know, like I didn't know there was an off-ramp capability to the thing. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the worst things I've ever done in my life. <laughs> and uh, I, it, and this is not an exaggeration. I ended the call, ended the recording, deleted the recording. <laughs> like, as soon as we were done, just straight up hit the delete button on that bad boy. Um, never listened to it back. Could have been good. Mm-hmm. Might have been good. Would have been great to be able to uh, insert that right here, you know? Yeah. But I couldn't do it. Well, luckily, I did preserve the recording. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but, uh, the, I, I think there's something to exactly what you said, because I think there is something, um, affecting about the way that Edmund McMillan talks about this stuff, even if it is really canned documentary stuff. And we'll talk about that in a bit. You know what I mean? Like, it feels mm-hmm. like it's from a documentary of this type, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, the, this, the, um, the editing produces what feels like a performance, Mm-hmm. When in reality, it certainly seems like it was not, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this documentary style, which is very much in vogue at this time, you know, the kind of like um, uh, shallow depth of field, wandering camera, uh, isolated object intercut with like way too close up footage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, all of that is like, you know, of of the time period that's in. Th- thankfully, we are out of that zone. 
Um, and I don't know really why. I'm not enough of a documentary studies person to tell you why so many lower um, kind of scale. I don't mean lower like as in worse, right? But like in terms of cheaper documentaries, right? Why did mm -hmm. they kind of look like this so much at the time? Probably because of the increased capabilities of digital cameras, but also the decreased capability uh, in terms of like fidelity for those cameras. And so you could really, if you went depth of field, if you used a lot of like still images, if you went in really close on people, you could probably cut around that really easily and make everything look very coherent. I really don't know. If you yeah. were a documentarian who was working in 20, 20, the early 2010s, let me know about why this was such a popular visual style for documentaries. So things I want to say, and this will be down in the description below uh, the episode if you're listening to this on a platform that has a description, which should be all of them, I believe. Um, you should check out probably... Um, uh, so the, this link will be down there. It's Liz Ryerson's piece, uh, review of Indie Game, the movie. I think that it's from right when it came out. Uh, it, it was posted on Midnight Resistance, which was kind of an independent media um, website, blog kind of thing. Um, uh, podcast, I believe, too, from that period, uh, which was highly influential. I think almost entirely forgotten at this point in terms of like uh, an outlet, but highly influential. Lots of articles about independent games and like, uh, deep criticism of games culture, you know, um, mm -hmm. kind of like ideological, and I mean that in a positive way. Um, criticism of the monoculture, right? Um, that, Midnight culture was, or Midnight Resistance was doing a lot of that work in this time. Liz wrote a few pieces uh, for that website, and uh, anyway, worth reading. I think it probably, if you're looking at what what is was a prominent response to it that was not celebratory. You probably want to check out that. It's in the description below. And uh, over the past couple years, I think in 2021, uh, on The Blood Zone, which was uh, Ryerson's uh, podcast, um, she did a double episode on this whole genre of documentary. So um, Indie Game the Movie uh, and a bunch of the other kind of follow-ups and also rands at the time, um, uh, which is pretty interesting. Uh, to check out, you know, and this is like four hours. If you like a long podcast, this is like four hours of people doing that. Style's a little bit different than what we do, so like, don't don't walk in there thinking it's game study study buddies or something like that. <laughs> different kind of thing, but really fascinating. I enjoyed listening to them when they came out, um, and that's called the Blood Zone, and the and the link is in the description below. Um, Ryerson has kind of made a career of like talking about this group of people, or did at the time from like 2012. Up through 2016, um, in 2016, wrote, uh, Liz wrote a really interesting piece for the New Inquiry called Taming the Inexplicable that's just about John Blow mm -hmm. and, like, the the mechanisms of Jonathan Blow that's also really, really good if you want to check that out. But do you think there's educational use in Indie Game the Movie, Michael Lutz? Uh, yes. Uh, if I were teaching this, I could see a couple of use cases. I think the first one is one that you mentioned as being like the uh, ideological snapshot of this time period. Um, just in terms of like what what did indie game mean in 2012 or rather like what did uh, what was it coming to mean? Oh, uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think the existence of this very documentary was part of uh what that was selecting for right indie game uh as being uh something made by a small team but by god at the end of the day it still ends up on the xbox live arcade right 
Um, y- yes, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Uh, and what we get are talking heads, right? So mechanistically, what we get here are our main subjects, who we'll talk about in just a minute. And then, especially in the first 15 minutes or so, a bunch of talking heads who like do this contextualization for us. And I just want to you know, note really briefly, uh, Chris Dolan and Jamin Warren get a lot of screen time, uh, mm-hmm. and they are probably the people who explain this. They are the founding editors of, uh, or uh, I guess the founders of, alongside some editorial uh, people, of Kill Screen Magazine, um, mm-hmm. when it was a published magazine that was pretty clearly split between uh, talking about independent production, things like that, and then, um, you know, doing interesting criticism of big blockbuster games. Uh, and I actually went back after watching this and read a couple of the issues and flipped through a couple of the issues of Early Kill Screen. And that is actually, you know, absolutely the uh, remit there is doing this work. Mm-hmm. So this kind of cultural explainer work that's going on here, you know, uh, when they founded Kill Screen, their whole thing was uh, uh, video games need their own Rolling Stone. You know what I mean? They need mm-hmm. their own. Mm-hmm. Consequently, Rolling Stone will go on to create a gaming vertical many years later that then uh, crashed into the ground, not due to anyone's fault, just because they thought it would be cool to have a gaming vertical, and then they seemed to not think it would be cool to have it anymore <laughs> very shortly <laughs> afterward. Um, I think everyone who was there did really great work. But uh, but yeah, so they become the talking heads to explain this to us. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah. No. So that's that's one case. Right. Um, And then I think the other case would actually be to like read this outward and not think about indie games so specifically or rather to uh, recognize what this thing is doing with indie games or calling indie games as symptomatic of a particular time that is uh, bound up in a whole lot of other uh, like aesthetic developments and cultural developments that are happening at the time. Um, Just. this there are parts of this film that are so powerfully reminding me of what it was like to be alive in like 2008 to 2012 right kind of like the the first uh a uh, little chunk of well actually you know the, the first obama term essentially um and kind of uh it's it's things like uh uh uh, Macmillan having like the Aqua Teen Hunger Force poster, right? This giant <laughs> yeah. uh, thing like in, in his office. Uh, it's stuff like um, just uh, Phil Fish's entire deal, right? Phil Fish <laughs> is such a type of guy. Uh, yeah. uh, him at IGF in 2008 coming up on the stage to accept the award and like wearing a fez. Like that was such a, a like signal of that er, like the it's not early internet humor right but it's um what we talk about a lot over on homestuck made this world or did talk about when show's done now thank god uh but this particularly we were talking about um like in the problem sleuth bonus episode over there right what did it look like when um like the internet started percolating into real life and what sorts of behaviors and mannerisms and sort of aesthetic qualities were, were suddenly kind of like uh, things you can do in public now. R O F L. <laughs> yeah. You can be a big walking Tetris block. I've seen mega 64. <laughs> I know uh, the main guy. Yeah. And so there's uh, uh, something about that, too. Right. There's there's something. So and and basically um, a word that you have not used, but is appropriate to this is hipster. Yeah. Hipster. Yes, absolutely. Like um, uh, the hipster aesthetic. uh, And then also has mutton chops, for God's sake. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Boy. Um, And then there's the uh, uh, 
I, salvific is not quite the right word for for this um, documentary's approach, but there is certainly a kind of techno optimism uh, that I associate very strongly with those years, and that we have watched, you know, for the past decade uh, <laughs> decay like a time lapse photo of a fox corpse. <laughs> what have I become? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, say more. Uh, I mean, so, uh, if you weren't around then, right, or if you were around but weren't quite in the space where you were maybe, like, taking, uh, uh, notes about cultural atmosphere or whatever, um, around, let's say, 2010 or so, a little bit before then, a little bit after then, and I think some of this was in large part, uh, instigated by, like, the, the Obama election, uh, this sense that, like, holy shit, we can, in fact, do things that are cool and potentially good, and uh, the new internet is going to help us do this, right? Like, the internet has finally come to a point where there are, it is, like, culturally saturated enough. Um, there are enough people on it who are then doing things off of the internet that uh, clearly, absolutely, technology is good, and it's helping us, and it's going to give more people voices, right? It's going to give more people opportunities to express themselves, to uh, make their art and share it with people. Uh, it, you know, it's all, uh, uh, the future's really bright. We got to wear shades because like technology is here. It's it's helping us make the internet and the internet is making us do cool things that uh, are, are just going to keep going on forever. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it, bound up in a lot of things, right? Uh, I think bound up in the particular youth movement, mm -hmm. you know, or, or at least the perception of a youth movement attached to Obama. I think that's right. You know, mm -hmm. like there's a broad recognition that hey, things might be looking up after the uh, the Bush administration, Bush two administration. Mm -hmm. um, there's also the onset of social media. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like we're we're only a couple. Like tw I'm thinking 2010, 2011, right? You know, as these things mm -hmm. like really accelerate. You know, they're, right. they are uh, hitting into high gear here. There's like this, oh, oh, holy, holy shit, you can do a lot of cool stuff on the internet. You could like meet people you would have never met before and talk to people. And, uh, you know, for uh, internet goblins, you know, such as yourself, yeah. perhaps myself, that was not particularly shocking. <laughs> right. Um, but I think for a lot of people it was. Um, and then there is this kind of creation of, uh, internet humor as its own thing. We talked about, you know, we've talked about epic bacon humor and Chuck Norris jokes and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, but also the, you know the the rise of distribution channels, right? Like all of these different things. Um, the idea that you could, with a good enough internet connection, share a bunch of stuff. You know, and for me, this was during my kind of turn away from. I was very much into video games up until like early high school. And then after that, I played some video games, right? I played Halo, played Metal Gear Solid, played Mass Effect when that game came out eventually. Mm -hmm. um, played a bunch of those types of games, the kind of big, you know, AAA games. But I was not, like, in it because I was working, you know, working a huge amount of time. And uh, I was really into film, like, you mm -hmm. know. And so I was, like, really involved in, like, live journal communities that were... Uh, you know, finding, you know, and showing films that were not popular films, right? Or like films from other countries that I never would be able to see, especially where I was from, things like that. So all of those things were kind of emergent. So I think you're right. I like seeing that clip of Phil Fish reading a poem or whatever and wearing a fez is like, oh, my God, what a snapshot of uh -huh. the particular thing, right? Well, how would you communicate that to students? I mean, what what's the, the outshot 
of all of this kind of ideological positioning, social media. Oh, I, sorry. One last thing I want to say, I guess, Arab Spring, right? Oh, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. There is actually, beginning in the 2010, beginning in 2010 and kind of stretching over the next several years, there is a broad narrative, right? Uh, like geopolitically that, oh my gosh, the internet might save us. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yes. that, that, that actually is, and us is like this big ambiguous whatever, <laughs> right? But, yeah. uh, but that is very much a, a thread of cultural knowledge, um, and, uh, and, and cultural positioning and for different groups, that means very different things, but it certainly was present. So that is all to say that that is the background, this kind of ideological internet background radiation to all of this other stuff that's going on. So yeah, what, what's your, what's your output for it? What, why bring all this up to a student in a classroom? Uh, that that's the output like why would i uh have them think about these things yeah 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 like mm. why why is this important uh i mean selfishly i think part of it is like knowing uh how all of these things eventually passed away right <laughs> uh, right yeah right like uh as part of like the the other unspoken word here maybe is like millennials right this is kind of like the uh cultural coming to come uh coming to cultural prominence of like the millennial generation um, and sort of all of the claims that were being made about like what this generation, our generation, uh, could do or was going to do or was interested in. And, uh, again, all very optimistic and then seeing how that foundered on the rocks of reality, right? Like, uh, I was actually just digging through my files here, but I think it's on one of my externals. Um, but you know, one of the things maybe to help contextualize this for, for my students that I would throw up on the projector or whatever is my first Twitter avatar, which I still have somewhere. Um, and it is a picture of me wearing uh, a fez and a pair of steampunk goggles, ironically. Oh, no. Right? Like, oh, that's 2009. So. <laughs> that's good. That's yep. very good. You know, if I find that, I'll I'll uh, I'll release it with the, the drop of this episode. I'm pretty sure it's please on one of my do. externals. Yes, please do. That's extremely good. Uh, but yeah, I no, I think that's right. And and it is interesting to to think about the the arc of this of of the documentary, right? Which is like what what did people think was possible and what was the horizon of that thought? Um, which is like where I think the documentary is so disappointing fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about that disappointment. Um, the documentary follows four subjects kind of yeah sort of who has a through line the actual story that structures the whole thing is the release of super meat boy mm-hmm. um which is tommy refains i never know how to i still haven't i've spent yeah. a decade not knowing knowing how to say his last name uh and edmund mcmillan mm-hmm. uh, doing the work on this game over skype an yeah. early an early version of uh, uh work from home yes <laughs> Of telework, um, and across the country, like the the so. second the Skype sound effect, which weirdly enough is sound, it's like a little voice gasping. Like when that happened on the soundtrack, I also gasped. I was like, "Oh, Skype!" Oh yeah, I mean, I was part of. Were you part of the these like uh, always on like fake IRC chats? Were you a part of those at all? No, I like hated Skype actually. So, <laughs> uh, I was not a big fan of Skype either. That was like not my deal. Uh, but a lot of kind of after this, I would say maybe twenty 
2013, 2014, I was part of like a bunch of different, you know, like little groups. Actually, maybe contemporary with this. Timeline's hard to do. And I, I like, I'm sure I have notes about this somewhere that I could like check. But at some point around this time, perhaps after Indie Game the movie came out, it became popular in indie game circles to have like a little group chat going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And your little group chat was just like people and the ones that I were in were like international. And it was just a single person message, you know, like a messaging thread that someone made Mm -hmm. that uh, was just on all the time because Mm -hmm. everyone's computer was just on all the time. And uh, so you were just in it and it Mm -hmm. would work like an IRC chat. And so, you know, I met a bunch of game developers that way um, back when I was more of a game developer. Uh, and they would just kind of cycle in and like you would go to a lot of them were European based or at least mm-hmm. the ones that I was in. And so you would like, I would go to bed and then wake up and there'd be like massive th- drama in the thread. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And like people would have left and picked up on a different one. It was wild. Wild. So, so I, I, there, there was a Skype culture at the time is what I'm trying to try mm-hmm. to express. So, so they are doing that. They're the kind of core. And this is taking us through the end of the development of Super Meat Boy and into the release of Super Meat Boy. That, those are the, the kind of uh, uh, markers mm-hmm. for, for that story. Alongside of that, we are getting some like philosophical and conceptual statements from mm-hmm. Jonathan Blow, who's yeah. kind of a subject and kind of not, you know. I was going to say uh, I, because mm-hmm. yeah, I so here's my schematic of this film, right? There are kind Oops. of three plots. Mm-hmm. Uh the main plot uh is the one that you already described, which is Ed and Tommy and developing and trying to release Super Meat Boy. Uh, and your effective, like uh, the the effective relationship that the documentary kind of tries to get going between the viewer and this plot line is, gosh, I hope they succeed, right? Y- yeah, right. Yeah. Like that's kind of like that's the the emotional hook there. Uh, sort of secondary, or sort of like maybe think of it as almost like a pyramid, right? They're like the base. Above that, uh, sl- uh, a slider is Phil Fish trying to uh, develop Fez, which we can talk about more later, but there's a very like complex thing going on with the development cycle on that game and lots of anticipation and so on. Uh, and the effective hook that the film establishes uh, for you there is, gosh, I hope he survives. Like, I hope he lives to see the end of this. Yeah, and that, that is what we are encouraged to to. To, to do there, yeah. Yeah. And then the very tippy top of that pyramid uh, is Jonathan Blow, who just kind of like wanders through this thing like, I don't know, a Vulcan or a ghost or something, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, Right. Uh, just sort of like dispensing kind of his because, in, you know, there's a reason for this is not like necessarily a knock against blow. Uh, it's uh, he's already released his game. Right. He is already the successful indie developer. And so he is like the uh, uh, um, the, the the he is both what uh, they are aspiring to. Right. The other two plot lines. And at the same time, like a warning to them. Uh, and that gets worked in, in a couple of slight ways, but yeah, so back, back to you. Sorry. I just needed to like lay that out. Cause it was so clear to me, this structure. And it was so odd that like Jonathan blow is just like here. <laughs> no, I think that's right. I, I, yes. Like he just becomes this like kind of, uh, avenging angel <laughs> who like, uh, uh, decrees, uh, warnings and spells, mm-hmm. um, fr- from beyond the pale because it, the implication is like, um, he created a personal project that was so good that and so uh, independent, you know, capital I independent 
that uh, it sets the marker for like all production. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like not so it's not just like the thing they want to get to, but like the apex of the genre, you know, in terms of how the documentary is presenting it. So we follow them all through that, and uh, the the ending result for all these people is like Phil Fish is probably going to release Fez. Uh, and his arc is that he gets through it, and at the end he has a PAX showing of Fez, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it barely works, but hey, it happened. Um, and, uh, you get to see a lot of game journalists and stuff like that in there. There is, uh, uh, Tommy and, um, uh, uh, Edmund McMillan and they release Super Meat Boy and it is immediately a bestseller and they become wealthy overnight. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, After like six and, hours of drama over it not showing up in the appropriate place on the on the arcade marketplace, but <laughs> right, right, there's a little, little little snag there. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, Braid was a success and remains a success, right? You know, and is still like you know even today still a celebrated video game. And they went on to make The Witness, which is perhaps even more celebrated in terms of like being lodged into games culture. Um, and that's it. That's like the end of the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, that's the plot line or there are things that show or the plot lines. It's actually not a complicated documentary. It actually, you know, at the time I didn't feel this way, but watching it back now, uh, really drags because there's uh-huh. not a lot that occurs uh-huh. in the documentary. Um, <laughs> now you said this to me, let's just talk about some of the qualities here. I, I want to talk about like what the arguments that it makes are, what's the kind of rhetoric of the object how does it function? But also, let's just talk about like what's up with the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you said in the first five minutes that your head started spinning around like some sort of cursed doll. Yeah. Um, tell me about that. So, uh, uh, you know, the, the the way that this film opens is actually it opens it <laughs> in media res, actually, uh, because it opens on the day that Super Meat Boy is supposed to launch. And I think it's Tommy who, like, wakes up and he checks the Xbox Live Marketplace and it's not there and he gets really upset. Uh, And there's just, like, lots of cursing and anger about this. And I thought that this was an interesting way to start it because it's like, I don't know these people yet. Like, (laughs) I don't know, like, the ways that they're reacting. How am I supposed to be taking this? Like, what's going on? Um, Because it can... It's just I don't know how how the documentary expects me to take this. Right. Are these concerns legitimate? Right. Or uh, are these people who are going to be revealed as like overreacting or something? Um, So I was like, what's going on here? Uh, But then we get into Jonathan Blow kind of talking about like his um, ethos as an independent developer and all this stuff. And he's saying, uh, you know, it's this is just a quote that I wrote down, uh, not trying to be professional. Um, and so there's all of this, you know, making something person, basically this ideology of the, the independent product as, uh, being a very personal thing, uh, but also non-professional, which is like perfectly fine, right? Like my, my games are also personal and unprofessional in the sense that like, I'm not a professional game developer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's incredible to like hear these things, uh, and realize basically oh, this is setting up something that is going to be used against other people, right? Not on the fault of the people saying them, not really on the fault of the people making the documentary, uh, but in the subsequent decade, having learned how often uh, the the pretense of like, oh, we're an independent, we're a scrappy independent outfit. We're not that professional. So we don't need things like HR, 
right? Someone to, mm-hmm. to maybe yeah, arbitrate yeah. disputes when uh, the boss gets a little bit angry, uh, when you're experiencing burnout. Like, uh, you shouldn't be experiencing burnout because this is professional. It's your emotion. It's your passion. You can't run out of passion, can you? Um <laughs> So just hear- right, 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 right. So he- hearing all of that kind of come together, um, just uh, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, wow, right here it is. Um, and well, then there's this distinction. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, and then like Tommy and Edmund talking about like, oh, it's about, you know, uh, seeing the possibility for action and taking it and communicating with people. And again, like, yes, that's true. Right. That's all about um, uh, it's also what my games are about, but um, then also thinking about the ways basically, right? Like, I guess what I'm getting at is um, the ways that kind of this documentary in particular signals, heralds, presages a kind of corporatization of the independent label and what uses uh, that label then gets put to using this same language, but um, while scaling it up to slightly different contexts and teams where uh, uh, the things being talked over or around or possibly even spackled over get a lot pricklier and um, uh, it becomes a way of like maybe obscuring certain relationships of power and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what what's happening at the same time? alongside this is startup culture yeah like these these two things are happening Uh simultaneous to one another and and, you know startup culture has got its roots like a few years beforehand but not too many years beforehand just in terms of uh staff up burn and that's the other part of of the obama years right Uh money gets cheap (laughs) money Uh becomes free in fact right like that that's the whole deal and so there is churning in the background here of, of what you're talking about and what's happening in the documentary is this idea of uh, finally the gates are open, we can do what we want, and what we have to ask critically as watchers of the documentary and as thinkers and as, you know, this is something that Ryerson has done a very good job of since this documentary has been out. You know, I was talking about Liz Ryerson's work earlier, is what gets snuck in and what just normal dominant values come in with this, right? Um, and it's a weird combination of... Uh, Video game industry standard practice, which if you know anything about the history of the games industry, has kind of always been the thing you're talking about, right? It's always been an excuse to pay people less for passion. It has always been a way of getting more work and labor out of people because of what they are making. You know, it it has always been a crunchy, passion-driven industry that makes its profits based on... um, uh, exploitation, right? I mean, mm-hmm. welcome to, to capitalism, but but uh, the games industry has always been, you know, you can go back and read in the 90s, change some terms around and, and read these interviews, and you're like, oh, it's the same thing. Go back to the Atari factory, right? And mm-hmm. go back to learning about how they cre- created games there. And it has always been undergirded by that very startup-y kind of thing, even though the language of startup is not there, which is we have a lot of money, we are on the cutting edge of technology, and so then, therefore, we will use laborers as a connective capacity for that in order to uh, create products for this emerging industry. That that has mm-hmm. you know, been the kind of techno-industry maneuver forever. And so what's happening? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. What, what you get to see in Indie Game the movie is not just that happening, because it is happening in the background, right? But you get to see the valorization of it, and you get to see it happening while the people there are telling you, 
we're not like the other people doing this. Right. Right. So Jonathan Blow repeatedly, I, it, the, part of the reason this documentary drags in a way, and I think it's kind of hard to watch, and I mean that in a very literal sense, like it, it just starts dragging in places, is that there are so, it's only an hour and a half long, and there are multiple places where people repeat the same information. Uh-huh. Um, literally almost word for word. So Jonathan Blow a couple times ends up saying something to the effect of, you know, other people try to make they want to become independent from the major publishers, you know, so they don't want to have to go through Microsoft. They don't want, even though the people here end up doing that, but they don't want to go through these different sectors. Um, what they want to do is go at it independently and figure out a mode of distrib- distributing distributing it themselves. There are these other people over there who are starting up their own studios and then they're just making the thing. Think here for a moment, if you want a companion for this, if you're thinking about teaching it, or if you're someone who's just interested in these ideas and you want the companion piece, go look at the Double Fine documentary, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Double Fine Adventure documentary, and then the, the second one that came out fairly recently. Just watch the episodes of those that go through the history of Double Fine. That's really who Jonathan Blow is talking about. I mean, if not directly, then that impetus, right? Mm-hmm. Like, in that moment, there is the capability for developers to find different funding channels and th- to go do something else, right? And you can, you know, go and listen to Tim Schafer talk endlessly about how he chased down money over and over again to start his own studio, you know, along with some other people. But um, so, you know, that's what's going on. And ultimately, what Tim Schafer makes, you can watch the Double Fine documentaries to see this, is he created a crunch-heavy, passion-driven, <laughs> you know, uh, corporation that produced products that were very visible and legible to the the modern games industry, you know, mm-hmm. or the then contemporary games industry. He created a puzzle platformer, Psychonauts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of that's pretty fascinating. And so Jonathan Blow is is the kind of um, talking head here to communicate that and to be like, what I make with Braid is not the same things as, for example, some someone like Schaefer makes with uh, this other product that they make, right? You know, they are ultimately doing that. Now... Braid is Super Mario Brothers with an additional really interesting time-based mechanic, mm-hmm. right? And and is and I don't mean I mean that you know I'm saying that dismissively and as a joke. Uh, it's not just that, but it is something that is deeply legible to a game playing audience, mm-hmm. right? Like it is a 2D platformer with puzzles in it and puzzle mechanics that has you play through a story that is told through text. You know, this could have come out in 1987 in terms of, like, its modes of communication with people. Um, That has you play through a story that ultimately flips, you know, a um, stereotypical love story into recognizing that, uh uh-oh, I'm the baddie. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that that is the thing. And then also has, like, a thing about nuclear war. (laughs) Yeah. This other thing going on. Yeah. Right? Uh, It is extremely legible. I mean, it is a very well-selling game. I think partially because of its independence or whatever, but because of its precisely because of its legibility, mm-hmm. you can explain Braid to someone very quickly and very easily. Uh, and I've watched it happen. You can give it to anyone who is familiar with video games, and they can pick it up and play it without a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it it is not um, it is not avant garde. It is not uh, outside of the bounds of possibility. It is v- extremely readable, extremely legible, extremely familiar for a game-playing audience, even at that time. And so I think you have to balance these things, right? Um, and you have to look at what is being presented to you versus the rhetoric of how it's being presented to you, right? 
Jonathan Blow as a talking head here. Maybe not his actual opinions, but the way he is edited in the documentary to produce a reality in which he is saying this, right? We always have to be careful about the way that documentaries stitch together and make reality. He is telling us all these things about what being independent is and what it means contra the rest of the industry. I think if you look schematically at what is actually in front of you, very little of that is true. So then what do we do with that, I think, is a big question. Mm Mm-hmm. Are you a braid or are you a super meat boy? Uh, probably. I, the, of the games in this, the only one that I have actually played is braid. Um, mm-hmm. and that was, you know, partly because I think, uh, rightly, this this uh, uh, documentary locks onto uh braid and Jonathan Blow because uh, I like that was an event, right? In two thousand eight, yeah. when that happened, yeah. that was it was really something. People like that was a moment where people were like, oh, independent games, independent games at that point might have meant um. Flash games on new grounds, which is, you know, what Macmillan is making. Uh, but uh, uh, those have a particular aesthetic, a particular sensibility and style to them that is actually still on display in Super Meat Boy in many ways. And we can talk about that. Um, but the thing about Braid was uh, not just the mechanical. Uh, it is like this uh, fascinating combination of simplicity. As you say, it's just Mario and uh, kind of ingenuity. What if Mario could rewind time? Right. Uh, So there was something about that. But then like the art and I think actually this is probably how I got to Braid was the art was done by um, David Hellman, who was the artist for a webcomic called A Lesson A Lesson is Learned, but the damage is irreversible. And I was like deep into the God. What? (laughs) I said, oh, my God. I just I didn't I didn't know that. I didn't know that that he was a webcomic artist. Yeah. So I was deep in the webcomic scene. So how I came to Braid, I'm pretty sure, was um, people being like, oh, the guy who does the art for a lesson is learned, like is doing a video game. And here it is. And like, it's really good art. Uh, And then the soundtrack was kind of like new and different, like this sort of like weird, folky, lots of strings kind of thing. It had just like a, a an entirely different vibe. Um, from a lot of video games at the time. Um, and yeah, so it, in some ways, like it forms the prototype into which uh, both Fez and Super Meat Boy are going to be made to fit by this documentary. Yeah, uh, yeah, um, it is. A, it is a, uh, I, that 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 connection to me is so fascinating. Like, is there a world in which Braid comes out and doesn't have a web comic artist attached to it and it just crashes into the ground yeah i don't know <laughs> maybe i mean this is my you yeah. know this has become my like weird uh like thing to think about right is that mm-hmm. games and games culture have so attempted to obliterate thinking through aesthetics just mm-hmm. period right like as if images don't exist right <laughs> um that like braids braids entire reputation lands on what i just said i mean i did it earlier right it, it, like i'm the problem um Mario plus time mechanic, right? <laughs> when in fact, like it has this lush and beautiful, um, and kind of like painterly, yes, um, you very know, much. rendered background and and images, you know, across the whole thing, that like you know makes it pleasant to look at, um, and the the expressivity of that little guy, mm-hmm. you know, that matters a lot. So I wonder, uh, as Chris Dolan says, he's a preppy. Yes, <laughs> a little preppy boy. <laughs> yes. I I do like that in the documentary. Chris Dolan. It, it seems like he is about to just ruthlessly shit talk Braid, and that is not in the documentary. <laughs> they just cut. They do right. Yeah. They're like, I'm actually surprised that Braid <laughs> did so well, and then it like cuts to something else. And I was like, I wonder what was what was Chris Dolan gonna say? Yeah. 
Um, I've only met Chris Dolan one time. It was probably in 2013 or something like that. Uh, delightful person. Mm-hmm. Uh, truly, um, like, just a, a wonderful cr- critic. I mean, I haven't met him in 10 years, but I, I knew him by his criticism beforehand, right? And mm-hmm. uh, just someone who was very influential on me wanting to write about video games for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil Fish. Phil Fish. Pe- pe- people have a lot of opinions about Phil Fish in the solo <laughs> documentary. Uh, the Phil, Phil Fish is kind of fascinating to me because Phil Fish was a person that I knew people had opinions about, but I was never close enough to Fez or any of the like the anticipation around it to know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this documentary suggests, and of course, uh, we're always talking about how is it, how is it, how is it framing these things? So I don't know how accurate this is, but, uh, uh, it becomes pretty clear to me very quickly in watching this documentary that like, Oh, Phil fish is kind of like an early version of the guy who can't log off. Um, right. He, he like, there's, there's something about, Oh yeah. Right. Like it turns out one of the reasons he has such a like fraught relationship with his fan base is that, uh, there's a whole bunch of people who will like shit talk him for question mark reasons, uh, per this documentary. I think some of it is like, because Fez is continually getting delayed or whatever. Um, yeah. And then his response is to, like, dig into those people publicly or visibly online, which kind of, like, uh, basically gives them incentive to, like, knock at him again when they spot an opportunity. And this just goes back and forth. And it's like, oh, God, like, I've at this point, (laughs) at this point, I recorded 40 episodes of a podcast about someone who who was in this position. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, and th- I guess that's also a thing that's like kind of under it, that is not said anywhere in this documentary that all of these people, as far as I'm aware, were active on Tig Source, um, mm-hmm. uh, which it was an independent games uh, focused um, forum. It, it's all goes back to forums culture, mm-hmm. right? But there was a forum, and obviously there were things that spread out from that. But you know, th- these games, uh, Spelunky. Uh, just a huge number of games that kind of blew up around this time period and were being developed in public. I've, eventually, you know, I think that maybe, I don't know if this is true or not, but one of the last TIG Source games that I can remember that, like, emerged, because I was a TIG Source reader, um, not a poster. Uh, one of the last things I remember that, like, was kind of live developed on TIG Source and then became a commercial product was um, Rain World, you know, so even as late as that, and that was probably like 2015 or 2016. I don't know exactly when that happened. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so all of these, so there, it's not just like, oh, he's ambiently, you know, in conversation with people. He is on a forum that is kind of about this kind of thing. Um, and it, it forums breed particular kinds of cultures. I think we can confidently say that at this point. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah, so like there's Phil Fish and there's a lot of Phil Fish kind of like venting to the camera in this, uh, you know, like then that's more to what I was saying, like um, um, and I think that's also tying in or folding into some of the stuff that uh, Blow is talking about when he talks about professionalism. And I don't mean that like Blow is specifically saying you need to uh, vent to the camera in this documentary, but I think it's part of it comes from a similar place, which is like. I'm an I'm not I'm not some big businessman, right? I am a person. I am an artist. I am making this game and it is an expression of kind of my desires and aesthetics and whatever. Uh, And so I'm not going to discipline myself 
in the ways that you might expect someone uh, who has a meeting with shareholders to, to discipline themselves in public, right? Yeah. Um, like, I think that's the, the, the whole Phil Fish thing is, oh, yeah, I think, you know, a, a downstream of precisely uh, what is what is being folded into or assumed when one talks about oneself as being an independent creator. Like, what does that mean? And what sort of like rules of decorum does that suggest? Um, and also, I guess, uh, <clears throat> maybe related to that, uh, the, the Phil Fish workflow that we see in here sounds like hell. Like when he's talking about making all the pixel art and like remaking the pixel art and uh, like that's the other thing that I guess gets gets uh, communicated or suggested through his segments. Right. Is that this man is a, a perfectionist, um, but it's not quite clear. Like it seems like the the target, his target of perfection is constantly shifting and he is maybe not aware of that or is uh, not so conscious of it or like uh, uh, he, he doesn't like put the the guardrails on. He, he gets to a point and he's like, I want to redo all of the pixel art and I'm going to do it this way because as he says, he, he had never done pixel art before. Uh, and so he starts out and then he gets like two years in and he's like, I'm a much better pixel artist now. So I'm just going to redo all of that art. And it's like, oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it seems, yeah, it seems bad. And the, you know, Fez, there, there's a lot of things that because documentaries cannot, they mm -hmm. are not full representations of reality. They are edited forms of, you know, they are produ they're products, mm -hmm. right? They are things that are made to be watched. Uh, and they take reality and they stitch it together in weird ways, right? You know, there's some stuff that's going on here that's kind of um, underwritten, right, or under-regarded. Uh, you know, so part of the thing that's going on with Fez is that it's initially funded by a Canadian grant, and that mm -hmm. grant goes away. And I think the, the final story to it, the way it kind of worked out, is that Fish split development resources with a Canadian game studio, like another smaller studio, in order to kind of make it work, you can see it in the pack stuff where um, that like it's clearly a shared booth, you know, with another company uh, with another game that is right beside it. Um, and so you know, there's this interesting thing going on there with exactly what you're saying, right? That there is this, um, uh, you know, what we're given to, to think of as like the uh, wild ass auteur, right? Mm -hmm. That's the way he is being kind of produced in this thing. He's being depicted as this kind of. Um, uh, over overwrought mad genius big quotation marks here right uh but but using that as a way of highlighting that and then kind of not highlighting the fact that it's a fairly i mean uh now i think much more predictable i think that that this kind of thing uh was being developed earlier on but you know a business partnership right essentially to like get money to make a game go mm -hmm. uh, but game game got to come out to make money for game right <laughs> um the whole time that that um Phil Fish is on screen here, and, you know, there's been a huge amount of stuff that has come out about Phil Fish, and I don't mean, like, come out, like, oh, my word, but I mean, literally, like, other products remediating what's going on here, whole essays written about the depiction of Phil Fish here, whole things, uh, you know, uh, uh, like, YouTube documentaries that are about, like, what's going on in reading Phil Fish, uh, you can find that on your own. Um, I'm I'm not directing you toward that, nor nor endorsing, nor not endorsing any of it. I'm just stating that it exists. But the thing that people don't talk about that I really thought about here is that this kind of like, um, as you were saying, you know, this uh, millennial figure, the the hipster creator kind of thing, right? This is very predictable. It's also tied in with like, you remember Shingy? 
Uh, vaguely. <laughs> Remember this guy? Let me I'll, I'll Yeah, I think so. the uh uh He's like a digi- yes. he was like a digital uh-huh. prophet. Yes, for I, I AOL. Had, yeah, I had to uh, type this into Google to make sure I was picturing the right thing. And yes, I remember Shingy. Right, and I also think that Shingy is like this prophet figure for, for you know the the world of uh, uh, like startup culture. Right, even though he's part of AOL, like that's not a startup. But like this idea that like blue sky vision talking about the complexity of the present that that in and of itself is like a visionary's imaginary and so if there is a new market to be opened up because you know everyone tells us pretty early on in the documentary and tells us a fairly common story you know i don't think there's anything here that really raises red flags in terms of the narrative which is that um video game um uh, distribution used to look one way and used to look like you went to a store and you purchased a product and uh, then Valve came along, and then they disrupted that entire thing with digital distribution. Now, everyone in the documentary basically refuses to say that one of the reasons that this changes is that people's access to the internet changed. Uh-huh. Um, it's not because the way it's presented in the documentary is it's like Walmart wouldn't let you do it beforehand because <laughs> they wouldn't carry your product. And it's like, buddy, up until 2010, I like I couldn't have downloaded anything. You know right. what I mean? Like it took days to like get anything on my rural internet connection. So let's calm our shit down. <laughs> but anyway, uh, like let, let's be real. Uh, but so anyway, Valve comes along, changes digital distribution, uh, and kind of invigorates that field. Everyone realizes that there is a gold mine in uh, digital distribution, and so all the different things, the PlayStation Store, the uh, Xblig Arcade, um, very, uh, Wii Channel, all those other things, right, start emerging uh, with that generation of c- game consoles in order to afford that for their platform, right, to capture some value. Good old-fashioned ideas here. Um, and so, but if, if uh, you know... Every uh, market needs its, uh, like, ideological profit, right? Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, every it, it needs its vision. <laughs> and for internet culture and, like, the corporate, you know, imaginary, it was it was shingy. Um, but I think for independent games, it might have been Phil Fish, right? Like, you need someone to be like, I'm doing it, and I have the ability to do it. I'm going to get a contract with Microsoft to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, so I think that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, I think it's pretty wild to include a clip of a guy threatening to kill his business partner in your documentary. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. That this, whole... It's wild. <laughs> this sure is a thing committed to film and released to the public, was what I was thinking. Yeah, I don't think I would do that. I just don't... But it, I think it is. It's exactly what you were saying, right? It's meant to give this image of Fish as like this off-the-cuff, like a true creative, uh-huh. right? He cares in the way that Picasso would care. He's so emotional know? because the art is so close to him and so real. He's right. Yeah. And and uh, notably, right? I uh, I don't think this has anything to do with Phil Fish the human being. Like mm-hmm. like the you could take all of the recordings that Phil Fish made for the documentary, right? All the all the times when they are putting Phil Fish on camera and you could cut them together in such a way that he appears to have none of these qualities and is the most stalwart, rational, un uninteresting person on the planet. Mm-hmm. Like there is just as much I know for a fact, right? You know, this is the reality of of doing documentary work. There's just as much runtime of him not being this character as there is of the character. It is a decision by the creators of the documentary to 
create a reality around these pieces, right? To, to make the pop of Phil Fish be this type of pop. Um, and so, like, you know, I think we do have to think about Phil Fish as a media object, right? As this kind of spectacle within the documentary, not just, you know, as like a real true human being. Um, in the same way that like Billy Mitchell is a media spectacle, mm-hmm. right? In the King of Comic episode that we talked about. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you think about Team Meat? What's going on here? Uh, Team Meat is really interesting because uh, like I was not a super meat boy t- kind of person, um, not kind of the game that I was interested in. Uh, but ultimately, you know, partly because it's kind of the central plot line here, uh, the one that was most interesting to me because we get all that stuff with, uh, Edmund talking about like his history with art and kind of like where he comes from and like his early home life and, uh, how all of this is being folded into Super Meat Boy, like as, as a technology of expression, right? This is, uh, when we get, we, we get it from Jonathan Blow, uh, quite a bit and we get it from Edmund. Uh, about like trying to communicate feelings to someone. And so we get kind of a, a little, not exactly flashback because it's a documentary, right? But he reflects on a game that he made called Ether that was about him thinking about, uh, I think his niece who was maybe five or six years old or something. And then like lining that up against his own experiences at that age where he was feeling very lonely. And we get all these little uh, bits about how his mother had moved them to California and it seems like he wasn't a particularly happy child in that context and he drew some kind of disturbing things and there was a teacher at school who uh, wanted him to be psychologically examined and his mother actually defended him uh, at, in that case uh, and he had a grandmother who was very supportive so like all of this you know stuff context about his life um, and uh, then it's put into Super Meat Boy, which is this game about a boy with no skin zooming around levels and falling into saw blades, uh, which is absurd and sounds very funny, but is also like, you know, just kind of true and was what I was saying about uh, uh, like kind of the vibes of this era. It's like such a such an adult swim uh, hot topic kind of aesthetic and vibe. Um, and it's interesting because then also uh, along with that, we get Tommy, who is also having a kind of emotional journey. Uh, but it's one like it, they're in crunch time for a lot of the documentary. And Tommy is the programmer or like main programmer. I I, I think um, mm-hmm. uh, McMillan yeah. has done some programming, too. Um, uh, But his whole thing is, is uh, he's. We don't get his backstory, right? We don't get the whole, like, history of him like we do with Edmund. Um, but with Tommy, we get to see kind of the uh, the uncertainty in the neuroses. Like, he, he's uh, talking about how uh, he, he's, like, you know, crushing bugs before release. He's trying to get the thing to run as well as he can, and he feels very uh, overexerted and uh, talks about how he kind of, like, hates the game. Like, it's just, he, he how does he put it? He says it's like, um... It's just an ugly piece of software that he is trying to keep from breaking. It's not a thing that people are going to enjoy. And that has such a, in the parts that we see, obviously, that has such like a shadow over everything that he is doing. Uh, And he kind of gets upset when, um, gosh, what is it? What's the first thing that he gets really upset about? It's something about... um, 
Hey, it could be a lie. He's upset yeah. a lot. Uh, one of the early things he's upset about is how Halo Reach is a terrible video game. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Right, yeah, Halo, Halo Reach uh, uh, sucks. Mm-hmm. I just remember there was something. It was maybe the reviews or something. He he didn't like seeing oh. re- when reviews started dropping. He was like, he no. Didn't... I think that it is not clearly communicated. I believe that there are reviews that came out that broke the embargo. Okay. And it, it is left unstated, it's a little bit unclear, and I don't know the history of Super Meat Boy well enough to know this, but it seems like between a couple statements that are made in the documentary, that maybe Edmund McMillan gave codes to people, or previews to people, and then did not give them an embargo time, Right. so they just did... posted reviews when they had it. Uh-huh, right, there's a bit where he real like he, he says to the camera he didn't know about review embargoes, he was like, apparently that's a thing that exists. Right, and yeah, because Tommy's on the phone and is saying like, yeah, I uh it, my problem is not that they're good. My problem is that they exist. Mm-hmm. So I think those two things are related. Okay, right. And then um when it doesn't show up on the Xbox Live Arcade when it's supposed to, it's Tommy who has the really big reaction to that and he's like super pissed off and uh, uh ruminating on it clearly for hours during the day. And this is intercut with footage of Edmund at his home with his wife. And they're just kind of like chilling on the couch watching TV. Yeah, because they don't they don't want to they want to stress out. About right, it. they've unplugged. They're fr- they're friendly uh-huh. and good. No, yeah, I mean uh, Tommy is presented as entirely as like the loner programmer, right? Like there there are stereotypes and stereotypes here, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Um, you know, he is the loner edgelord programmer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is so funny to me. His like, we don't have to do what the man does here, right? Like, we we don't have to do that. We can have our character shoot the bird. Yeah, <laughs> you know, use their middle finger. You can't do that in corporate America. And it's funny. It, it's just, it, it, it's like, what if South Park were radical? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what if the politics of South Park is just a radical, normal thing? Um, yeah, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, we're going to have this skinless boy fight Dr. Fetus, or whatever that character is called, right? Uh, uh, yes. Just a, a tastelessness for the sake of it, uh, bubbling up from South Park, from uh, Flash games on new grounds and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, very Adult Swim, like I already said. Uh, yeah, and I think then the other thing that is really interesting about all three of these kind of plot lines and the people who are involved with them is that if you had your entire picture of, say, uh, Edmund and Tommy built from this documentary, you would get the sense that Tommy is the programmer, absolutely, uh, and Edmund is like the artist. Think about how I just talked through all of this whole history we get about his artistic development. And he is truly an artist, right? He's, he is like designing these characters and making these art assets. And we also get mm-hmm. a scene where he um, talks through like mechanics. So he's obviously got like a mind for that he's he's doing other things he's doing actual design work uh but the yeah. film tries to frame them as kind of like programmer and artist as kind of like distinct entities and uh you might think that like uh, through through the random uh chance of internet right they they met each other or whatever and decided to join forces and make this little game uh even though closely watching, you know that that's not true because there's a the scene where Edmund proposes to his wife, or rather, rather than girlfriend, is done on stage at IGF when another development team that he is a part of wins an award. Uh, and so 
this unspoken thing here that uh, charitably we're just supposed to take as an assumption and uncharitably we're supposed to maybe like conveniently forget in order to have a more emotional or impactful story uh, is that uh, Macmillan has a background working on various other games, right? So does Phil Fish. Uh, So does Jonathan Blow. Uh, But their lives and sort of like the work that they did within traditional corporate game space before they went independent, none of that is discussed here, right? Their independence as a as a, a kind of concept. Uh, for that to emerge as it does, seems it seems necessary to kind of obscure the fact that these are all people who have worked in the professional games industry in various capacities and therefore have, uh, you know, knowledge connections. Uh, they've been to school for various things, or like at least partly, I know Jonathan Blow dropped out, but then um, I think also about the fact that Phil Fish, uh, there's a, in, in his part, uh, he pulls out like the old uh, Mac that they had when he was right. a kid and he would like make and he shows this off and it's, you know, kind of sweet. Uh, he would make like images in kid pics and then his dad, while he was, well, Phil was at school, his dad would, I think, like pull these into HyperCard or something and he would program uh, little hidden object games. Uh, and that's obviously like very important to Phil Fish as kind of, you know, part of his creative development and all that stuff. Uh, but the other thing that it like very much demonstrates is a class background aspect to everything that's going on, right? This was a, a family that in the eighties had the Mac, had a dad who, uh, had the knowledge to do these sorts of things. Uh, and I was actually just double checking, um, uh, Phil Fish's Wikipedia to see what was going on. And apparently like his dad translated the legend of Zelda into French so they could play it together when he was a kid. So, wow. Right. So, uh, just, you know, to signal like the, the ways that, uh, who these people are in this documentary has to be a function of the parts of them that are very much glossed over in terms of like their benefits, advantages, uh, or just um, uh, the various types of experience, the actual real world experiences that they had to have, uh, I think, to bolster this notion of like anybody could make the next independent blockbuster game, right? You could just be an artist who finds a programmer on DeviantArt and then you're off to the races or something like that. Uh yeah, or, or on Tig Source, right? right? That's the the that's why the the absence of Tig Source here is, is such a glaring thing. If you're aware of what's going on, is like it was the community to figure that these things out. Yeah, that like not only was he on stage at the IGF and part of a uh, you know a dev team, McMillan uh, worked on Gish, and I think it was the primary artist, maybe a designer on Gish, mm-hmm. it, which won the Seamus McNally Prize, right? Right. Like, uh, it, it is the 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 biggest prize that the IGF can give, right? Um, and so, yeah. Anyway, it's it it is notable, and I think you're right. And this is the thing that you know I mentioned way earlier, Liz Ryerson. But this is the thing that lots of people targeted and honed in on here, right? Like, this is a documentary that, on one hand, is interested in selling you the idea exactly that you just said. Anyone could do this, right? Making independent games is about coming from outside the industry and making a product or an idea that communicates a feeling, mm-hmm. right? It's not just Master Chief shooting people right. or whatever, right? As Tommy Rafain says, quote, those those games are shit, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh, in one of the, the I think, off-quoted things from here, right? All of them have, uh, you know, as you were saying, they all have pieces in the commercial games industry. I mean, uh, I, I, lots of people have written about this. We don't We don't have to go through it. 
Um, but the the notable thing about that too that you're pointing out that I just really want to highlight is the class position thing, mm-hmm. right? Like um, uh, Tommy Rafaines' uh, family has a house that he can just live in mm-hmm. and you know live on sub twenty thousand dollars a year or whatever, uh, waiting for his hit to happen, right? You know, um, Edmund McMillan has a partner and has presumably some other money that he has made. Um, off of these other projects that at least keep them afloat. Jonathan Blow was a consultant for for the games industry and kind of a problem solver. If you do any research on Jonathan Blow's history, uh, his background in the games industry, in the commercial games industry, is really fascinating. Um, just in terms of like what he did, which was like come in and help solve really complex problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of them were part of you know these big networks of other game developers you know and some of who are more professionalized and some of whom were less professionalized but nevertheless you know they were part of these networks um so this is a the ultimately I guess what I'm working my way around to is that you're exactly right what the the argument of the documentary and perhaps what's important about the documentary today and why it is maybe teachable and and useful for working through some of these things is I think all these narratives still stick around right mm-hmm. like the games industry is is more accessible than ever ever before and I do not mean accessible in the sense that people who are historically marginalized within it have more access to it I mean I think statistically that might be true but I do mean accessible in the sense that it is more dispersed it is more uh non-hierarchized there's more money around now than there ever has been in, in history in terms of finding financing, finding ways to access the games industry. Um, that has happened over the past 10, 15 years, right? That it went from being a cloistered thing that was only in a very small number of places on the planet to being a dispersed and weirdly, uh, you know, a uh, huge thing that's deeply neoliberal. And so in being neoliberal is very invested in creating connections and, and creating partnerships around the, you know, the planet, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, uh, that, that is the shape of the industry at this point. Now that does not mean it's equitable. That does not mean that it's actually creating pathways for people who have been historically unable to access it. I think that if you look like the, uh, you know, People, the four white guys who are in this documentary, right? Mm-hmm. If you look like them, you're going to have an easier time getting into the industry than uh, than if you don't, right? I think there's something still very salient and resonant about that part. Um, but I think the the reality is that even with that, even with the increased capability of people to enter into the industry, it's still all these invisibilized structures. And the documentary, you know, that that uh, 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 provide. Uh, gates to that access right and this documentary is a really good object to look at to then work backward to figure out what those gates are right and what's fascinating to me is that they're all invisibilized in terms of the narrative never speaks them the narrative is never able to speak that Edmund McMillan is already attached to the games industry it is never able to speak the conundrum of Hey, isn't it a little bit weird that these are like the scrappiest, most underground dudes on the planet, and yet they have a contract with Microsoft already? Right. You know, off the back of a Flash game they made. Isn't that a little bit weird, right? right? Isn't it weird that all of these people have this uh, really specific nostalgic relationship to 8-bit games? <laughs> right, right, in sixteen-bit games, yeah. right? Isn't it? Isn't it interesting that they are constantly evoking the games of their youth, and then like the icon of the documentary is itself an you know a uh, Super Nintendo controller, right? right? Like, hmm. Uh, 
all of those things are never narrativized, I guess. They're not invisibilized. They're never narrativized. They are all in the documentary. Mm -hmm. It just takes a little bit of thinking, right, of comparing images and comparing the statements you were given in order to work your way to, I think, a pretty sufficient critique of the thing. Right. Um, and you could go infinitely deep on it, like you can on any object. Um, but to me, it is, you know, the narrative of the industry is roughly still the same, right? Mm -hmm. Like... Uh, if you have a great idea and you have a lot of passion and you're willing to burn yourself out to in order to do that, you can create an independent object that will sell a bunch of copies. Right. Like that that has never been less true, perhaps, just statistically. And and yet, despite all the people that we know who are constantly saying that is not true, that is still widely believed and also is sold to people in game development programs. I mean, that we can't uh, underestimate that at the same time that the industry has become, you know, uh, more dispersed, one of the engines of that dispersal is the opening of game development programs at every, you know, not truly not every, but lots and lots of um, uh, programs, academic programs worldwide mm -hmm. that are selling ultimately some version of the dream that is being presented here. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of things that are like <clears throat> uh, invisibilized, uh, but there, if you sort of like look at the images and everything, I think it's extremely shitty. Uh, the way that this documentary makes the entirety of uh, like the the inappropriate response to uh, Braid uh, that narrows that down to that clip of Soldier Boy talking about the game. Yeah, politics there aren't good, right? This documentary with like these uh, white game developers and like the the one significant like black person who shows up is uh, basically treated as a joke who doesn't understand uh, uh, the depths of uh, care that went into the object and is therefore making Jonathan Blow very very sad. Yes, yeah. The the there are people who don't understand the reality of games, and it it Soldier Boy stands in for literally all those human beings, right? Them and, like, anonymous, angry internet commenters or whatever, right? Right. And, and like, notably, right, the, the documentary can't, when Jonathan Malo is talking about um, sort of his unhappiness with, like, people not not having the, the takeaway from the game that he hoped for, uh, documentary doesn't really dig into what that means. Like, what did you no. hope for? What are people saying? Like, because I don't think it's all just Soldier Boy you know, saying that the little guy looks like Mario from the future. Like, I don't think that that's right. the, the sum total of grievances that uh, Jonathan Blow ends up having. Um, but it, it's presented very cleanly as just like he made this deep, complex thing. And then there are people out there who are treating it just as some sort of silly game. Right, right. And it's something different from that. I mean, there is a really fascinating set of statements here that are about um that a game they're like nested comments here right one is the thing that we've talked about on game studies study buddies repeatedly which is like because it is interactive therefore it does more right and there's it's more complicated than that so that's number one uh and so that but that is taken for granted here that that is obviously true mm -hmm. you know because because is that but it is because it allows you to communicate better right to, mm -hmm. to do better forms of like self-expression mm -hmm. but that's only taken seriously within a commercial games context right like uh, it's it's about a personal project but a personal project that is like sellable on the xbox live marketplace uh, for all of these games for braid for super meat boy and then fez right like fez launches with a i think a full year of 
X or you know, uh, Xbox Live exclusivity to it, mm-hmm. you know, before it even came out on PC. And so there's something really interesting going on with that there too. Um, that games are capacious and can do anything we want them to do, but within a very very narrow you know set of lines about uh, who who they appeal to and why they appeal and things like that. Uh, and anyone who doesn't get it is like part of the the you know the goofball group out there who like doesn't understand the truth of art. Mm-hmm. And it, but you know maybe if if you'd like Chris Dolan speak a little bit more, we could have gotten more of that, yeah. right? But but the documentary has to be very kind to its subjects here, um, which which is fine. Whatever. I mean, the, you're making a documentary, um, and I believe this is the first documentary that either of these people had made. Mm-hmm. Did you know that there's a sequel? I think I read something about that. I have not watched it, and I don't think I'm going to. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, what do you th- what do you what do you do with the these images that were shown here? Like the the way that we get you know like the uh, the lake outside, you know, we get the apartment from the outside. We get the the hanging Super Nintendo controller. Um, does that do anything for you? To, is that making a claim of some sort? Do you think, or is that just like? We can't just show gameplay footage all the time. So then, then therefore, we got to do this. Uh, I thought that these, uh, these, I guess, establishing shots. Um, I thought they were odd because, like, when when we get those shots of the river, it's like I don't know what this has to do with anything. Where is this river? I guess it's in North Carolina. It's a little, it's a little muddy. Um, well, the, I mean, the outside of Pax is shot like it is a Soviet. <laughs> Yes, they go to PAX East, and they go to the Boston Convention Center, and it's like, yeah, oh my god. Um, and I, I'm not like I've been to a PAX before. That's not how it looked, uh, but I have not been to PAX East. So yeah. perhaps I, I don't understand the East Coast. PAX East is the only PAX I've been to. So yeah, it's exactly like that. There's like food lines and everything. People are like, I don't want to eat, but Gabe and Tycho were there, and they're like, No, you must. Got it. Um, no. Uh. uh so uh, I think the one that I think the the shots of like the house and the river uh, kind of outside of the pack stuff, because I think that's is that Tommy's house? We get Tommy's house and we also get the apartment that Edmund okay. McMillan lives in. We uh, uh, Jonathan Blow lives nowhere. Yeah. He lives in a corporate <laughs> uh, what appears to be like a corporate office tower. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I mean yeah. where I say he like wanders through this thing like an alien ghost. Right. He's yeah. just like. <laughs> He's just there. Um, uh, so I think like some of the thing with the river that I thought was interesting is I thought that that was intended to maybe work back a little bit on what we were saying about class, where it's like, ah, look at this rural North Carolina river or something, right? Uh, this man lives in a detached home with trees around it. Um, maybe somewhat unsuccessfully, other than like I looked at that house and I was like, yeah, I've seen houses like that. Like It's like a normal house. Like it's not a big fancy mansion. Um and then the, the the one that I really hated was the one that you mentioned about the uh, the shots that they have of like the Super Nintendo controller hanging from the power lines like they used to do with uh, uh, tennis shoes where they'd tie the uh, laces mm-hmm. together and throw them over mm-hmm. uh, because I, I don't know if they found that organically. If so, kudos. But it just stinks of something that they staged for this production and it's like mm, what a delicious visual metaphor the game controller hanging from the power lines over open air who shall reach up and grab it and of course that image gets reproduced uh uh in the poster right mm-hmm. um i don't know 
that's those are my thoughts on those images you asked that's my that's my feeling yeah that's my idea so i mean yeah that that makes sense yeah to me i i i don't really know what to do with them it feels like this is what documentaries have so then therefore we have to have these things right um which is just fascinating to me um let me see if i'm looking at my notes here to see if there's anything uh else here um that you know the the documentary really te- uh, i guess what's fascinating to me is like the indie scene, which is a, a real words that are used, if you want to like really lock this down in time, mm-hmm. it's treated as a really coherent and single thing. Uh huh. I think what's really beneficial of like the moment that we live in right now is that, on one hand, it seems like it's much harder to find independent games uh, and to get them known. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and to, uh, I don't know, like make them legible and visible to like the world at large it, it seems like that's only gotten harder but on the other hand there's no indie scene anymore mm-hmm. um in terms of like a single coherent thing that is locked on one platform or one location i think that's probably good in a general sense mm-hmm. um so that that's interesting to me um the Oh, and the, like a full 20 minutes of this documentary are just about like how many copies different games sold. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fascinating to me. And it's also interesting that Limbo shows up here as like a sea change in how all this stuff works. And then like Limbo is like no one from that game is in the documentary. <laughs> yeah. And then like all of the uh, indie games that are not featured in the documentary getting like still shots in the credits is a weird move too. But I apparently... Uh, I did not make it through the credits. Oh, okay. So. Yeah. No, I <laughs> mean, apparently, you know, they shot tons of footage with like other uh, developers and things like that. But then in the process of making the, the documentary decided they were just going to focus on these few stories. So I assume maybe that some of those images come from people who they interviewed, but then like their projects ultimately weren't featured. Yeah, there's like a huge amount of additional material. If you have the Steam copy of this, also maybe this is the first film I knew that came out on Steam Mm because I actually bought it on Steam originally. Yeah. Um, I purchased the, for this episode, I purchased the limited number, only 3,000 were made, uh, Blu-ray edition of this. It has all that extra footage on it. And wouldn't you know, I did not have time to watch any of it. <laughs> uh, so I am I am the owner of, let's see here, copy 721 of 3000. Um, and it will live on my shelf for eternity, I guess. Maybe it's a DVD. I'm not quite sure. But <laughs> anyway, I, I bought it. Uh, and I, apparently they're also in the special features uh, that you could buy for $5 on Steam. <laughs> so there's a lot of that stuff. I think some of it's on Vimeo, too. You can find a lot of the things that didn't make it into the documentary uh, that are there. Um, I guess another thing here that, uh, two more things I want to say really quickly before we're done. One is that there's a thing that McMillan says at the end that's like, golly gee whiz, I created something that is, uh, you know, a deep connection from me, you know, that, that ultimately sidebar, but is a really kind of like pat story, right? Which is like, uh, I created a boy who's made of meat, who has a love interest who is a girl made of bandages and he needs her. She completes him. Mm-hmm. She needs him. And like, I don't like number one, that's just that, that, that is not the most, uh, uh, interesting tale to tell. 
Uh, Number two, I think it has some really bad implications to it, right? And, like, I understand it is a platforming video game. It doesn't have the deepest story on the planet. You know, that's whatever. I think we do have to think of it in its context. But also, if that is taken to be, like, the grand arbiter of, like, deep meaning here, we should think about how you communicate deep meanings, which is, like, really uh, traditionally kind of sexist values here, right, Mm -hmm. of... Uh, women who complete emotionally or physically incapable men. That can go down a very dark and bad road uh, in a general sense. That, that's not a cultural value that that I think uh, produces really great outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that conversation, he was like, well, I made this thing that's a deep communicative practice for me, and uh, it seems like it's received universal praise, and that's great. And it's like I number one, like that's that's fine. But universal praise is being, um, you know, that's like game reviewers, and then that is sales. And I I think that we should be pretty critical. And if we were teaching this, uh, uh, and I think this is a useful thing to teach for that is like maybe we can think about what success means beyond those two things, mm-hmm. because neither of those things are what I would say are the mar- the marker of a successful art practice for me personally, right? Like those are nice tertiary things, right? Um, Those are nice things to have happened after you create that art, but I don't think either of those should be the thing that demonstrates you have successfully communicated something to someone. Um, The flip side of this is like, uh, Avatar is the greatest work that human beings have ever produced because it sold so many movie tickets, right? Right. (laughs) Um, Like that just, that doesn't work out for me. Uh, in a general sense, but what's fast and whatever you can like Avatar, I think Avatar is fine, all that kind of stuff. But the notable thing for me is like the documentary spends so much time saying we're different, we're different, we're different, and literally that line of logic is the James Cameron line of logic, right? There, there is nothing more commercial than that line of logic. That uh, cultural dominance, that sales, that uh, commercial success are the sign of a successful product and a successful artistic practice. Um, when I, we, we both know, hopefully people who listen to the show know that, uh, a successful artistic practice can have many different ways of thinking about success mm-hmm. and, um, commercial success is only one of those, hopefully, and uh, hopefully not the primary one. Also, Matt Jones is in this documentary. <laughs> um, I just want to mention that, um, uh, as a, uh, as the person who wants to have an unboxing of super meat boy. And so goes and buys Xbox points and, uh, Matt Jones is like a um, social media person for IGN now, but has been around the video games world for a very long time. At one point, uh, co-hosted Oh No Video Games. I think that's actually um, contemporary to this documentary coming out, which was a influential, uh, I certainly listened to it, uh, early games podcast. You know, kind of in the giant bomb mode, I would say, in a, in a broad sense. Just a group of people hanging out, talking about the games they played. Uh, and I enjoyed it. I, th- probably one of the first podcasts I ever guested on, actually. Um, but it's very funny. I actually asked, I sent Matt a message and said, hey, what's up with you being in this documentary? And uh, this is what Matt says. I was told I could read this on air. <clears throat> Here's the additional stuff. The shirt I'm wearing is a freebie from an event showing off Left for Dead 2. And the original video has the, the Mars Volta song in the background. They cut that for presumably not wanting to get the license. The reason I cleared it to be in the movie is they said they would give me codes for the film to give out on my podcast. They didn't. And I am credited at my request as Matt. Oh, no video games. Jones. <laughs> so I think that's very funny. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, sometimes the tale to be told is not by the primary 
subject of the documentary, you know? Yeah. Sometimes the truth's the tertiary figure. Well, would you would you uh, would you teach this? Is this worth viewing in twenty twenty three, Michael? Uh, yeah. If you have an agenda for it, right? Yeah, I, you can't just I I don't think like uh, uh, naively bring it up and be like, isn't this a notable thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, illustrative of various things, but you have to want to illustrate those things. I think in order to really have a use for it. Yeah, you can't uh, you can't just like bring it up and endorse it. You can't be like, "Golly gee whiz, kids! Did you know?" <laughs> I think that's probably irresponsible. Yeah. Well, All right. Next month we're uh, starting the summer of agency. 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 We're gonna read a bunch of books on agency and how agency is constrained or not constrained. And I'm not gonna tell you what we're reading yet, <laughs> even though uh, we know. But- even, we know, we definitely know, and you don't know. You can go to twitter.com slash ranged touch in order to figure that out. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch. That would help us out a lot. And please leave us a five-star review. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. You can just hit the five stars. You don't have to actually leave a review. But I think we're we're floating at 4.9. And if you gave us that five, it's going to get us to the five. And that helps people listen to the show. We don't do any advertising to the show. We don't make you listen to ads. The only thing we ask is that you please support us on Patreon. If you want us to do that, you get access to a bunch of other cool stuff that we do at Range Touch. If you want to hear us talking about more things, that's a good way to do that. Uh, but really, uh, helping us algorithmically uh, is, is a big deal, too. So if you could hit that five-star review thing and maybe tweet about your favorite episode of the show, if you like this one, that could be cool. Uh, but any episode of the show, that's always good. Talk about it on Facebook. Talk about it on, talk about it on Blue Sky. If you're over there, do it there. Get on co-host. Talk about get Game Study Study Buddies there. Anything you can do to help us tell people who don't know about the show about the show. Tell it to your classmates. Tell it to your students. Tell it to your professors. You know what I'm saying? Get in there. <laughs> tell it to your colleagues. Half of you are working game developers uh, who are listening to this. Tell it to your colleagues. Let them know. Um, I think that's it. I think that's the end of the episode. And uh, you can find out what we're doing on... Next month's episode. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye.